Ryan Bourne is the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato, Bourne was the head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and head of economic research at the Center for Policy Studies in the UK. He's here today to discuss his recent paper, Is This Time Different? Schumpeter, the Tech Giants, and Monopoly Fatalism. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Hi. It deeply saddens me that some of our some of our listeners uh, may not know who uh, Joseph Schumpeter uh, was, why, and why we would be talking about him in relation to these big tech giants uh, that everybody seems to be talking about these days. Yeah, it is a shame. I mean, it's obviously somebody who we in free market circles talk about a fair bit, given his. Um his main claim to fame is coining the term creative destruction to describe the process by which um, capitalism over time uh, engages in this kind of transformative effect of, of delivering new products and services that arise as a result of robust competition. And that leads to the collapse or change of whole industries and, and structures over time. I believe at one point he referred to I, – I, I was literally just writing about this the other day, so not that I have all this memorized. I think he called it the essential fact – is that this is the essential fact of capitalism, the birth and death uh, of companies from competition. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's there's two reasons why he's particularly important to this debate about tech. Um, the first is that there's a number of economists, even people who subscribe to what we talk about as the consumer welfare standard and believe that antitrust policy should be focused on, on trying and delivering as much consumer welfare as possible. Even some of those people, like Jason Furman, used to work for the President Obama's administration, seem to believe that there's just something fundamentally different about tech companies, whether it's the fact that uh, these companies benefit from what economists call network effects, the fact that they're very large and have a, uh, large economies of scale, the fact that um, many of them are platforms, which are kind of different to delivering traditional retail goods. And why I think that's important in a Schumpeterian sense is that if you go back and look over the past hundred years or so, there's actually numerous other com companies that work in or operate in similar industries to today's tech giants who people thought were unassailable monopolies mm -hmm. and people thought they were unassailable monopolies for the exact same reasons mm -hmm. as people now think the tech terms uh, tech firms sorry are fundamentally different and if you if you kind of take that as given where Schumpeter really adds value is that he recognized that antitrust policy to the extent that it you know it does work and and we believe in it it often misses a very important margin of competition which is this competition from the fundamentally new product or new innovation uh, delivered in such a way that marks a decisive quality or cost break from a previous industry from previous industrial output and Traditionally, if you look through some of those firms that we believed were unassailable monopolies, they didn't get blown away by similar competitors competing with them on price. They got blown away by completely new forms of competition that one couldn't even have envisaged. It wasn't some other company doing something, you know, 10% better uh, and maybe they have a little better advertising or maybe their product was branded slightly different. The pack. It was something really, really different. So you're almost – so you're really – uh, competing in a fundamentally different way, or else, or else you probably couldn't have beaten a big established competitor if you did it otherwise. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the examples I talk about in my paper, for example... Now, now, I want to go through all these examples. Okay. okay but, so just to make sure, so I can sort of glean what Schumpeter is saying about monopoly fatalism. Is that, is that just the idea that these companies can't be assailed? 
that they are sort of from is that, is that what he meant by a monopoly fatalism yeah i think that's right and and i think that's what we hear in a lot of these debates about um the the tech companies at the moment people talk about them as if um there's just no way that a competitor could could overcome the economic advantages that they seem to have. Right. So you talk about Facebook, for example. People just say, well, the network effects associated with Facebook are just so large that it'd be impossible for another... And by network effects, what's, what's an easy way to explain that to the audience? Essentially, it's that people get more value from the product the more users there are. Um, and then there's a, a, a kind of secondary term, which is called like indirect network effects, which basically means that once a product becomes overwhelmingly popular... Um, other people in complementary products might di- start designing their products so that they work most effectively, say, with a with a um, internet platform. Mm-hmm. And as such, it becomes much more difficult then for a new platform to come in um, because they'd have to, uh, you know, attract all these secondary markets right. in such a way that they could actually, you know have um supply of goods and services that people want right so i might make so maybe maybe i i make a piece of soft that software that works or an app that works with android and iphone uh but then if there's this you know other operating system that i when i got to make it for them too or this i i often think of video games where if you want to create a new video game system then then you got to expect someone to write video games oh for that system too and there's just only so many sort of games they're going to write for so many systems. So it's sort of the indirect kind of ecology that builds up around these platforms. Let's go through some of these companies. Let's go through some of these historic uh, examples that that you mentioned that shows in some ways there's nothing different about these new companies as some of the old ones. Uh, One which I'm just old enough to kind of have a memory, even though this company only went out of business, I think, fairly recently. It hasn't been a major uh, player for a while, which is AMP, the grocery store, or the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea company. What can we learn from that company? And how does it sort of apply to technology companies today? Well, I describe this as kind of the Amazon of its day. It was a company that fundamentally disrupted the the retail sector in the, in this sense, the grocery sector. And prior to AMP and other chain stores coming around, basically people used to go to um, small independent stores. Uh, goods were sold to them usually on credit and often then delivered to, to customers. And those retailers... You didn't often, walk in these stores and start taking things off the shelves and putting it in a basket. No, quite often they were... You know, the, uh, some of the goods in some of the stores were behind the counter, right. as you see in some pharmacists today. But right. other times you went in and placed your order and then the goods were to de- delivered to you at home. And uh, these stores also tended to buy their goods wholesale from uh, middlemen and, and uh, people called jobbers who were often corrupt. Um, uh, you know, they um, were often buying and selling their products kind of uh, as, as middlemen. And that made the industry as a whole quite high cost and quite inefficient. And what AMP did is it came along, it offered standardized stores, uh, it vertically integrated in in some ways, so it started producing its own bread, it started producing its own canned goods, um, some dairy products too. Um, It founded its own distribution network in the same way that we're talking about uh, now with, with Amazon. And for products that it didn't produce, it built so many stores that it actually benefited from being able to buy in bulk from wholesalers and was able, as a result, to drive down uh, the prices that it had to pay for those wholesale goods. So you combine all those things together, and those efficiency gains actually led to consumers benefiting to the tune of up to 15% in terms of price cuts. Now, the reason that this is so similar to the story you hear about Amazon today is that all the same complaints were made by 
industries disrupted by this change of model and uh, uh, you know some concerns at a consumer level too. It was said that AMP harmed local economies by usurping those those traditional retailers. It was said that they were engaging in predatory price cutting. Uh, which pred- is right, predatory price. Yes, yes, that's a very common complaint about Amazon, which is that you're you're cutting it you're cutting it so low to drive someone else out of business, and then you're going to crank up the price as soon as they get out of business. Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. That's the broad story. Um, they also said that they were giving preference to their own goods. Uh, within the sort stores, of private label goods. That kind exactly, of. exactly. And now, so Amazon did not invent that. I did not invent private label no, goods. No, I mean this is something that's been around in the retail market. Well, since since uh, chain stores like AMP fundamentally right. came into the system. So this there's nothing new under the sun here. And I think you know most strongly, and and the thing that really did have an impact on policy is it was said that these uh, chain stores were able to drive. Um, prices down from wholesalers in a way that was fundamentally damaging. The story you hear about monopsony power now, right. big buyer powers. You know, monopoly is when you have a single seller in a market, and monopsony is when you have a single buyer in a market. Um, and this this stuff led to a bunch of pushback from wholesalers and other associated retailers, such that by 1936, we had the introduction of the Robertson-Patman uh, Act, which essentially banned wholesalers from offering different prices to um, to different retailers who were buying their goods, and that you know led to prices going up um, for for shoppers. So I think um, I think when we're thinking about Amazon, we have to be aware that there are lots of vested interests, um, industries that have been disrupted as a result of Amazon's business model. Um, that are currently wailing about the effects of Amazon on them. But that's something very, very different from consumer welfare. And in the AMP case, it was clear that AMP were good for consumers. They drove down prices and increased choice substantially. And my fear is that we're kind of returning the debate to, to an antitrust policy predicated on protecting competitors rather than protecting the dynamic process of competition. Right. And, and, and again, some of these complaints that you heard against AMP also, uh, as you mentioned in your uh, report, which we will link to on the website, that they were driving, you know, these small kind of mom and pop retailers uh, out of business. You heard those complaints. And then, and then decades later, those complaints also were launched against Walmart. And People who sort of follow us are very familiar that there was this sort of, you know, I guess mostly probably from uh, the progressive left, a lot of criticism of Walmart, uh, not just that they didn't pay enough uh, to their employees, but they were that, that they were bad for all these businesses and all these downtown areas. And now those same arguments have sort of been applied uh, to Amazon. So we start, so you can sort of do you know, follow sort of the, the storyline over really over a century uh, with very similar arguments being made. Yeah, that's that's entirely right. Um, whenever you seem to have a period of immense disruption to a sector, you get these sorts of um, complaints. But it's worth noting that in the AMP case, you know, people then thought that the chain store model was kind of the end of the line, and we weren't going to see right an end of history argument for retailing. Exactly, but then. Chain stores themselves then had to compete with the arrival of big box supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then had supermarkets um, integrated into shopping malls so that people could do all of their, their shopping in one place. Mm-hmm. And, of course, technologically, we had the rise of national 
television, which established brand products in the consumer consciousness and made it much more difficult for um, firms like AMP with their own branded products in many cases to to compete and to maintain their model. To what extent was the decline then uh, of AMP because of these new competitors versus government action either directly somehow hurting their business model or sort of distracting them with all, you know, new regulations or lawsuits and they had to go lobby, that kind of distraction. What, what, what was the cause of sort of the decline of AMP? Well, it seems overall to have been a slow decline, which suggests that it wasn't purely about the antitrust action, though evidently that didn't help. Mm. If you look, it's extraordinary, actually. In 1949, AMP launched a nationwide advertising campaign mm. just making the case that their activity was beneficial to consumers. They took out ads in 2,000 newspapers mm. across the country. So clearly they were having to devote uh, both time and resource um, to investing here. But it's difficult to ascertain exactly how much that affected the fortunes of the company, not least because we saw the the rise of uh, of uh, national brands as a result of, you know, the more in the way of national uh, television, just at the same time as they were overcoming this antitrust case. Now, originally... The, the district court in D.C., I believe, did say that AMP should be broken up. So clearly that was a big risk to the company. Eventually they, they, they toned that down on appeal to just selling off some parts of their, their brokerage business where they used to sell um, some products to their competitors. And people said that was unfair. It's unclear why. But, you know, it did have an effect in terms of the distraction. But ultimately, they themselves were undone by the exact same changing dynamics of a market that they themselves had inflicted on. on uh, and, and really a classic case of an incumbent sort of unable to make those changes. You know, one sort of model has worked and uh, this new, and they're sort of being disrupted and they're unable to sort of then, then either be, either they're not willing to or they're just unable to execute in adopting a different model uh, successfully. Uh, so that, 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 there's kind of your, your Amazon analog. Uh, another great one is, always comes up, is, is MySpace. Uh, in fact, you lead off your sec- the section on MySpace with a quote from a, uh, a technology writer in, two th- in 2007. Will MySpace ever lose its monopoly? It was unimaginable that as powerful a social media platform as MySpace could ever be beaten. The, uh, but yet now it's sort of a, it's a punchline. It's a punchline that that you, know, you have you still have like a MySpace account, which I think MySpace still uh, exists, but it's very different. Obviously, it's not. So what happened to MySpace? Well, some commentators dismiss this example and sort of say you're attacking a straw man because not many people thought that MySpace was an, assail- an unassailable monopoly. But actually, when you go back, there were people writing exactly these types of articles and there were antitrust cases brought against um, uh, MySpace. Live Universe, for example, said that... Um, MySpace was engaging in anti-competitive conduct just because the company wouldn't deal with them on a on a uh, contractual basis. So um, this definitely was News Corp didn't buy them for half a billion dollars because they thought they were they were you know a fly by night company that was going to easily be disrupted by you know you know one click away somebody else. I mean they they obviously that was a huge bet that this company had some sort of sustainable dominance. Yeah, and Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, as you say, saw the potential value in social networks, uh, but it just so happened that MySpace <laughs> wasn't a particularly didn't particularly endure for very long. People claimed MySpace wasn't just a monopoly, but a natural monopoly, and the broad idea was that because people had 
invested time in uploading content, coupled with those network effects, the fact that the product's um, worth to consumers rose with the number of users, meant that their position was was pretty unassailable. Um, they weren't. They're, 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 a competitor wasn't a click away because it was sticky. Because you already you already invested this kind of work, and whether it's modifying the site, uploading content. And that it was just such a pain. I mean, theoretically, you could go to a competitor, but it had been so difficult. That was a very high barrier. Yeah, that's right. And there's a very funny quote in one article by John Barrett in Tech News World, where he essentially says that social uh, network websites like MySpace are much stickier yeah. than search engines such as Google, where just one click could take someone to a competitor's site. So he foresaw that MySpace would endure as a dominant monopoly, but Google would never be able to <laughs> entrench their position in, in such ways. So broadly, what happened? with MySpace, founded in 2003, saw a rapid expansion of users. You started hearing people talk about these network effects and thinking that MySpace was going to dominate for a long time to come. They were bought out by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp in 2005, as you say, for just over uh, uh, half a billion dollars. And for a time after they were taking over, their their revenues exploded, went up about 50 times. Um, at one time, I think in, in 2006, they were the most visited website in the US over Google. So, you know, we're talking about a massive company here. But just as this article was being written in The Guardian, of course, Facebook had come along. And Facebook... Uh, was a different type of social network, had a different balance between the user interface and uh, the extent of adverts on a page. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more user-friendly and now allowed more space for innovation and the eventual development of the apps that we saw. But importantly, Facebook was able to overcome those network effects in part because it adopted uh, what might be described as a, an email address importer. So when you join the network, um, you... you uh, could agree to give um, access to your email account to Facebook. It could then send emails to to certain other people, friends or whatever, and it would try to build a network to overcome the incumbent network effects that, that MySpace had. And MySpace's market share as a result of this kind of aggressive move from Facebook declined from over 70% of the social networking market in the US to less than 30% within a year. So this That's was incredibly, in, incredibly uh, rapid uh, decline. And I think what this shows is that, yes, network effects, I wouldn't say they're a barrier to entry for new firms, but they're definitely a cost of entry and something that's difficult to overcome. But they're not insurmountable. Um, their existence doesn't entrench monopolies for the long term. And uh, the reason for that is that competition can still exist for the whole market. Yes, we might not want to have the type of social network that, or be members of a social network in the form of Facebook um, in, in four or f- on four or five different websites. We, there's value in, in one being dominant to the extent that um, it has a large um, network of friends that we're able to connect with. Um, it's kind of a one-stop shop right. for contact storage, for messaging, and for all of these other things. But that doesn't uh, preclude competition for the whole market. So I think the MySpace example, what, what it shows is that Facebook, if it doesn't keep up its game of constant renewal uh, and uh, seeking measures to try to keep people interested in the site, then network effects can lead to a a rapid deceleration once you start uh, using active users. Now, do you... 
I also know there's a criticism of MySpace example that that Facebook's dominance is is much, is much more. It's been it's been and it's been sort of in that top position for far longer than MySpace. Uh, and granted, there you, know, you have you have these competitors come up, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Snapchat now TikTok is like the classic example of new competitors. But you don't think that changed your thesis anyway that 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 Facebook which now is in a way kind of a holding company for, uh, for social networks. You have Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, that, 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 that you can have challengers to that position. I think one of the really difficult things here is defining exactly what the contours of a market are. Um, is Facebook primarily a social network? Um, is it a digital advertising space? Is it part of the broader advertising um, ecosystem? Or should we, and I think my old friend uh, Nick Clegg, <laughs> he used to be Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, is now working for Facebook. He had an interesting article in the New York Times where he actually outlined, you know, one way of thinking about Facebook is that it's competing in all these different sub-markets. So it's competing in the instant messaging market. Uh, with a range of different firms, including Snap and uh, including iMessage, Apple and iMessage. Uh, it's maybe competing in the uploading of photos with a bunch of different um, companies. It's competing in kind of contact storage. It's competing in the digital advertising space, for example. So defining what the market actually is, is incredibly difficult. And remember, from an antitrust perspective, that's the first step. We have to define what the relevant market is. Then we have to assess whether there's um, uh, whether the firm has monopolistic power, is it acting in anti-competitive ways. And so what I would say in terms of this example is that the point I'm getting at is that there are many people, even people who agree that we shouldn't fun- fundamentally overhaul antitrust laws, that believe that there's just something different about firms with significant network effects. Right. And I think the MySpace example just serves to show that network effects don't preclude uh, a new competitor coming in and taking some uh, subsections of the business or acting as competition for the whole lot. Um, that's what Facebook did to, to MySpace. Yes, Facebook has endured for longer. Um, clearly, it's doing something right that's maintaining consumers' attention. But that doesn't mean that something else couldn't come along in future. And the whole point of the paper is to you know, hark on Schumpeter's point that we can only really assess this stuff by looking retrospectively because none of us has a crystal ball is able to predict the technological and and uh, company changes that but, are but happen. yet the historical record should give us at least a degree of confidence that even though we can't predict what that future competitor will look like or how exactly that competitor will compete with these companies that yet they do they do arrive and they do come and now i i wasn't even going to go into this example but i love it because i point out at, uh, about nokia and again uh great uh, uh, famous uh, headline on Forbes magazine about Nokia uh, 2007 it said uh, Nokia the um, uh, you know, cell phone company 1 billion customers can anyone catch the cell phone king um, obviously someone did catch the cell phone king uh, but also interesting is when it was you know 2007 uh, so this Forbes article pinpointed Nokia as being sort of unassailable perhaps the exact moment when it's when 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 its competitor was emerging, which was the iPhone. That's right. Um, it's almost too good to be it's true. Um, amazing there's, timing. There's one quotation within that article where the Forbes writer explicitly says, "As a result of the number of 
uh, handsets that they were selling and the reinvestment through uh, in, in R&D that that was able to provide through those economies of scale. He said, no mobile company will ever know more about how people use phones than Nokia. They had the data. <laughs> They had the data, yeah, and, they, and isn't that one? Of, isn't that a frequent? We were talking about the network effects as being making it very difficult to create a competitor, but also that that these current companies have so much data on their customers that they can that that they can uh, not only you know create a, have an advertising model, can they generate you know huge revenues which they can then use to um, improve their product, or they could use to you know to buy up competitors. But they just know they can also you know fine tune their product. They just, they just have all the data, and you can't beat them. And a new company doesn't have the data, therefore they have no chance. Yeah, I think people talk about this this data issue in the wrong way. People talk as if companies like Facebook and Apple are kind of a, a blank page where we go on and write everything about us, um, and then from that they extract value and able to just go and sell it to advertisers. No, actually, much of the data that we give Apple or Facebook is created as a result of us using their platforms in ways that are beneficial to us. They're things that we we, uh, currently do or engage in or click or like, which, of course, yeah, it then informs the companies about our desires and demands. But at the same time, they're obtaining that data by providing a service of things that we enjoy engaging with. So it's not purely kind of our data and people talk about data and the need for portability to to other social network platforms but that data is in part a creation of the networks and of the um, platforms that apple facebook and others have created so i think it's wrong to think about this stuff in in terms of our data but you're right nokia was thought to have so much data and to have such big economies of scale from their kind of large global um, market share that they were going to be able to dominate for a long time. And, of course, Nokia primarily specialised in hardware. And what they didn't foresee was um, how important in uh, smartphones, how important app-based technologies were going to be. And that's where... And in all these in. stories, there's a what-they-didn't-foresee moment. That, that, that happens frequently. And not only they don't foresee them, oftentimes the Wall Street analysts don't foresee, the journalists whose beats are, are these companies... They don't foresee. And yet, continually, people assume that they can't foresee. Well, and sometimes they do foresee them, but they don't foresee the potential. So Nokia actually um, designed and produced some of the first smartphones, but it didn't foresee how important the app-based technologies within those smartphones in future could be. Um, Kodak, overwhelmingly dominant in photography, um, produced the first digital camera, Steve Sasson, in 1975. Didn't foresee the potential for that to be... uh, uh, a large-scale kind of consumer product for the mass market. They they used that technology and sold it to high-end kind of niche products. So, yeah, it's not just a case of, uh, of sometimes firms just not being able to conceptualize a different way of doing things or a different type of product. Sometimes they do, but they don't think that they can produce them on, on the right scale to, to, to benefit from their creation. Or, in, in you know, they don't foresee the potential... D- uh, latent demand there for the products and sometimes internally um, there's res- resistance to changing a model that is perceived to be working you know if it ain't broke don't fix it right. and so it's sometimes very very difficult for incumbents to make that transition from producing one type of product to another right especially if uh, you may actually you know cannibalize an existing business line uh, which is already producing revenue for something that may produce revenue in the future um, one thing I want to get to here, here at the end is to what extent, I'm not sure how much you've looked at this, maybe maybe not at all, 
uh, what do you think about the argument that you have you have companies they have a lot of data they have a lot of money they're able to go out and see you know see what are the new companies which companies may be potential competitors they buy these companies up and therefore uh, those competitors never grow up to be to be incumbents or real competitors they just get subsumed within the company do you think do you think to what extent do you think that's happening and are you concerned that all those competitors are just going to get bought up when they're startups and and therefore they'll they'll never actually challenge these huge incumbents well clearly horizontal mergers um, of that variety already fall under the purview of antitrust law the main thing that I'm worried about is the classic examples are Facebook and Instagram yeah. and WhatsApp that, that they should not that Facebook should not have been allowed to buy those companies so instead of us having to choose between two companies that may have very different privacy policies data privacy policies or some other differences competing against each other they're, they're just all Facebook one two and three yeah, and you see that with Google and YouTube as well. But clearly there are potential consumer benefits here, right? So Google bought YouTube and uh, by integrating its search technology has been able to fundamentally make YouTube a better product for consumers. It's much easier to find things on YouTube now. It's much cleaner to upload videos to, to YouTube. And actually when people are worried about some of these issues to, to do with child protection, having affirmed the size of Google behind YouTube, one would imagine they'll be much able to go on and and deal with that problem in the longer term obviously there are difficulties with it at the moment and you've seen a similar thing i think with with facebook and and instagram as well instagram is a fund still a fundamentally decent product a consumer still has the choice to to use it and opt for it but now you can also of course um, share your photos from instagram onto facebook as well which is a new addition to uh, the product that consumers are able to enjoy and i think what people kind of miss here sometimes is that Yes, there's a potential problem of uh, companies that are in dominant market positions buying up potential competitors and quashing competition. We can look at that in the round in, through existing antitrust law and cases being brought. But also the potential for your for your new app to be bought up by one of these huge companies. That, 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 is, is, that is often hand-waved away in these discussions. And I, you know, I'm not entirely sure how to balance... Uh, you know, a company just sort of getting big and becoming a competitor versus, you know, it provides sort of an off-ramp for these companies. And then, you know, not only can those companies, you know, maybe then those founders could create another company and those investors can put that money back to work. And maybe that product makes the the, the acquiring company better. But it certainly seem, it would seem to me a significant factor you need to take into account if you're going to suddenly stop stop that from happening and, and being much tougher on letting big companies buy these small startups. Yeah, well, one thing I'd just say in conclusion is if you look at all of these tech companies, they're spending vast amounts of their retained revenue on research and development. They're constantly looking to innovate and serve kind of low ends of markets that other tech companies aren't currently serving. And if you read their annual reports and things, they tend to be overwhelmingly worried about things that they can't even foresee for, for some of the same reasons we've outlined here. Now, all of that combined... It's not that they're not aware me. of this issue where yeah. someone made – I mean, they've, it's sort of, they've read the book. They've read the Clayton Christensen book. They're aware of disruption, and they're spending – they don't look at me, I guess, but they don't look comfortable to me, and they don't talk like they're comfortable. That That's it. They've, they've figured it out, and they will never be challenged. No, that doesn't seem to me any of that to be the behavior of a company that thinks it's got an entrenched, monopolied kind of walled garden and that um, barriers to entry are so high that it will be impossible for a potential new companies to come along and, and steal some of their business. My guest today has been Ryan Bourne. Ryan, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. City.